Hey, welcome in to the House of L podcast. I am the L of House of L, kind of. I'm Lauren Tomes, and welcome to episode 56 of the podcast. I've been dying to get this guy on the pod for a really long time. I'll explain why coming up. Very excited about the next few things that we're going to do with the podcast over the next few months. I, uh, I just recorded an interview that we'll release next week. I'll tell you at the end of the episode who the guest is. But I can tell you, and I listened to you, that I didn't break this episode up because people like to listen to it and they don't want to wait another week for the the second half of it. So next week's episode is the longest one we've ever done. Longer than the golf episode. It's really good. So is this episode, which I will get to now. This guy... That I invited on, Jack M. Silverstein, is a sports historian. When it comes to Chicago sports, this is the guy that you want making the case for you. He is brilliant. Brilliant is actually the right word to describe Jack. You should be following him on Twitter at ReadJack. He's written a book. He's actually written a couple books. He wrote a book about President Obama. He wrote a book about the 96 Bulls. So basically anything that is Chicago is Jack. But his book on the 96 Bulls, how the GOAT, GOAT, GOAT. Well, it's a GOAT. How the GOAT, GOAT. I keep doing that. GOAT. How the GOAT was built is magnificent. If you're a Jordan junkie, I highly recommend that you go download it. And it's on his his. Twitter page. So read, like read a book, Jack. At read Jack is where you can find him. And you will have an incredible sense of what this guy is all about. We were pressed on time. Jack and I wanted to talk forever, but he had some things that he needed to do. I needed to get ready to do the show. So we were only able to talk for an hour, but it's an uninterrupted hour which whenever I bring Jack on the score, I'm always bummed when I have to stop him in the middle of a thought and go, hold on, we need to take a break. Now, it's great as far as teasing people goes. I mean, that's fantastic, but I would prefer that you just hear it. So I wanted you to enjoy this episode. I I think that it's really good. I think that you'll get an appreciation of why those of us in the know find Jack to be a special dude. You know, he's a he's a great resource. He's someone that does deep dives into numbers and he he tries to make sense of numbers along with telling you narratives, how things happen and why things happen. He's a really good balance of the objective and the subjective. And I think that we all could be better at at walking those tight ropes instead of going into our armies of, well, what's his number on war? Or how much pi- fire and passion does he have? Jack's good at sifting through all that nonsense and just giving you the real. So we sat down a couple of weeks ago and we talked about a bunch of stuff. Some of your favorite players that are coming up for Hall of Fame induction in in the NFL. I'm sorry, in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. For the Bears, we made cases for them. 
And Jack makes some really convincing cases. We also talked a lot about the Bulls and Bulls history. I know that people right now are very frustrated with the Bulls as a franchise, but they do have this rich history, and Jack is kind of one of the guardians of that history. So enjoy. If you are a Chicago sports junkie, this is the guy for you. Jack M. Silverstein. Let's get into it. Get into it. We got 40 minutes. Let's make those 40 minutes count. I love it. How did you decide that you wanted to marry kind of your love for history with your love of sports? It just seemed to make sense. I don't think that I really decided it as much as it was always what I was interested in. The um, the guaranteed gift every Hanukkah at a certain point was the ESPN Sports Almanac. And I knew I would get other things, but that was the one item that I knew for sure I was getting, and they gave it to me first because then I would spend the rest of the night, whatever the big gift night was. I don't know if non-Jews know, but there's eight nights of Hanukkah, but they're not all like smash-out Christmas nights. So like the first night might be socks. Yeah, there's like a school supplies night. (laughs) But there's always like one or two nights where you're with like everybody. And I always got the ESPN Sports Almanac, always just started tearing that apart. I remember um, they somebody put out the, the Total Football Encyclopedia, um, and I started reading that, and then I would find typos and errors and send them in, and I memorized presidents growing up. I memorized states growing up. I, memorized, I had a poster of the however many NFL teams there were before Carolina and Jacksonville, 28 probably? 28. And I had a poster of all the teams in their divisions, and it was right over my bed. So that was how I memorized where all the teams were. I memorized Super Bowl history. I have dreams where I can just run through the list of Super Bowls, you know, this year, this year, this year, teams, MVP, most of the scores. So it was just like a thing that my brain does. I never really set out and said, I'm going to be a sports historian because it looks cool. It was like, oh, I have an unusual capacity for memorizing numbers and a great patience for building my own Excel spreadsheets. And, you know, I emailed emailed, uh, whoever makes baseball reference way ago, like 08, 09, and I said, hey, listen, this is an amazing site. I want to let you know that on the box score composite of the 05 ALCS, you're missing uh, A.J. Pruszynski. He was like, oh, thanks, and put it in. You know, like I have like that in my head. That's just my habit, my nature, so that's how it developed. You must love Sporkle. Oh, man. So I taught myself all, um, I think at the time it was, uh, there were 53 countries in Africa listed on Sporkle, but there were like, and so maybe it was like 190-something total countries. Yeah, the, the countries of the world one is a very humbling exercise. Really humbling. And so what I would do is I would do all of the um, I would do all the continents individually, and then I would do the countries of the world. And I was just like doing Africa one day, and all of a sudden I had only fifty three out of fifty four, and I was like, oh no, what happened? And since when were there fifty four? And it was the day that South Sudan. It was like the week that South Sudan had gained independence, and that's how I found out that it happened right then because I was missing one on Sporkle. That's insane. Yeah, I love Sporkle. I've written some really, really hard Bulls Sporkle quizzes. Well, good. I, I do want to I talk to you them. about the Bulls for sure. Yeah. But but since we, we got into this, I 
Dan Zampillo, who used to, I used to do a show with, he used to rem- he had the presidents memorized too. Yeah. I can do I can probably go back to eighteen hundred, but I usually go backwards. I don't go forward. You know, like they like I can I can probably get you to to Thomas Jefferson. You're probably and then you know Adams Washington. You're good. Is there a president that you find fascinating? Mm. My father is a big Thomas Jefferson buff. He reads everything on him. Our our house growing up was loaded um, with that. I don't have one particular president who I find fascinating. Obama to a degree because I was ground level to you know for him because I he's Chicago. Um, I was at Grant Park. I was at his inauguration. So there's always a, a personal affection there. I didn't know you were at the inauguration. Yeah, I went down. Out just just to support, or were you actually covering the history? No, 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 no. I was just I went out, and we actually my friends and I lucked into tickets. A woman that morning, as we were walking to the mall, and we were prepared to be way, way in the back, and this woman stopped us. She was from a some Maryland uh, congressional district, and on a fluke, just said, "What states are you all from?" And we were like, uh, "I'm from Illinois," and these two are from Michigan. And she said, "Well, it doesn't matter now." And she handed us three tickets that were like leftover for this congressional district in Maryland. I didn't even get her name. She was like in a hurry. We were going and, and, and it hit me with such force. I didn't know what had happened. And all of a sudden I was like, Oh my God, I'm in the, like the yellow section or something. Like we were way up front. That, that must've been a, a life changing moment to be there for what was a special moment in American history. Yeah. It, and it, for a history buff, like uh, the, you being that close to it, you you must have been dumbfounded. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, we could we could see everything ourselves. Um, and I I met a I met a guy in the crowd, and we're still friends, like on Facebook and Twitter. He's a he he's a editor for a newspaper in North Carolina, and we talk every now and again. And it's just like what a bond to have because we both were in the same yellow section. But yeah, it was it was amazing, and I think when you're there for history, you remember all of the wrinkles. So there was this weird moment because when everybody was coming outside, uh, they had the they had the big screen on um, that showed all the politicians coming from wherever they were backstage out to their seats, and you basically had two views. You had a view of who was actually emerging um, from the hallway or whatever. And then you had a view of the people who were starting in the hallway, however many yards back they were, okay? And at the same time, Bush was emerging, like, out to the public area, and Obama was then first seen. And so everyone was trying to cheer for Obama, but then they didn't want to cheer for Bush. It was these little, like, wrinkles that that sort of thing is going to be lost but it was this weird little moment where everyone's like, oh, no, we can't cheer for this guy. But we'll cheer. We got to make sure we're, people know that we're cheering for the right guy. I'm like, yo, we're standing in sub-frigid temperatures at this guy's inauguration. I think everybody knows who we're here to cheer for. Don't sweat it. But it was just like this weird little wrinkle moment. Or the fact that he um, – that Roberts said the wrong words for um, the oath. for the oath. And then they had to redo it the next day. And Obama had memorized the oath, and so he said what he was prepared to say because he was like, I'm worried that what if something happens? What if my mind goes off? So he memorized it. Robert said the wrong thing, and then it looked like Obama said the wrong thing. But in reality, Robert said the wrong thing. 
But you don't remember that if you just read it later. You know, I don't know if anyone will write that down. Maybe somebody will. No, I, I wrote it. I in remember my book, that. Like, I mean, yeah. it was it was a, a significant thing. Right. Right. Is there a moment in history that you wish that you could have been present for? Whether national, international, or Chicago history. Well, I think there are mysteries that you kind of are like, uh, it'd be cool to just be there with an ability to like freeze time and fly. And that way you could see like, all right, where was Lee Harvey Oswald? Or you know, like something like the, that. The three sixty view. Three sixty freeze frozen, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't play Madden anymore, but I remember at a certain point you were able to do that. That was one of the big innovations in Madden was pausing it and being able to do like the 360 freeze like around the whole stadium. I would love to go to Dealey Plaza November 22nd, 1963 and go and just like pause. Okay, 12.55 p.m. Okay, pause. 12.56 p.m. Like, you know, going around. That would be cool. Which one of the Chicago teams piqued your interest first? Like, which one of them did you fall in love with first? Because you, if you look at what you write, like you write a ton of Bears. You write a ton of Bulls. You write Cubs and White Sox. So which one of them is the, the gateway drug for you? I would say the Bulls in the sense that the Bears are eternal. And you just kind of, the Bears just seep into, and I imagine this is the same with a lot of football teams, but the Bears seep into your pores. I mean, there was no debating about whether or not you were going to be a Bears fan. My earliest memories are my father and one of his closest friends explaining, all right, we root for these guys in these shirts, but not these guys in these shirts. This is Walter Payton. Oh, why is everyone yelling? Oh, because he ran into the end zone. Well, what's an end zone? Oh, that big rectangle. Oh, okay, cool. Like, that's early on. And I was born in 81, so the Bears were good pretty much as soon as I was conscious. But the Bulls came along kind of right as I was coming along. And the Bulls were founded in 1966. My father was my, – both my parents were 16. They weren't into the Bulls at that point. Then they moved. They were East Coast when the Bulls got good in the 70s under Dick Mata. So the, they didn't have a connection to the Bulls in the same way that they had to the Bears or to the Cubs. And my father grew up a Blackhawks fan. And I always say that Chicago fandom, basically everyone has the Bears plus one uh, baseball team plus one United Center team. And it kind of splits down that line. And my dad grew up a Hawks fan because he was 11 when they won the Cup. Um, and so the Bulls were the first team where I was more excited about them at an earlier age than my parents. Even though my father taught me a ton about basketball and he, we'd be watching games and he would say like, one of the cool things about watching basketball on TV is that you can see everything in a half-court set, so you don't have to watch the ball. And he would be like, just watch Ewing and Cartwright. Take a possession off. Don't watch what's happening with the guards. And just watch the guys underneath. And it was like this lesson to me that there was always something happening in sports that went beyond what was going on with the ball. So he taught me that, but I was more excited about the Bulls at a younger age because I didn't have, like, the Blackhawks. I didn't have other memories of the Bulls. I hadn't been given anything else. I was clean slate in a way. So the Bulls, I think, were a life changer in a way that the Bears couldn't be because the Bears are always there. And then you get the player who's bigger than life. Bigger than life. In, in Michael Jordan. Yep. And and you're able to, like as you said, like grow up 
with him. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. I'm a little older than you, but I I do remember, like, how important that was to my life. Like, as a teenager, like, watching the first championship and watching everything that that group went through. And it was almost like Chicago went through it with them. 100%. Where, where you're seeing them, like, they have to get over this Detroit thing. Like, they just have to and that they're going to get over it and they did and that that celebration of that first championship to me was insane like I was what 15 see almost 60 just turned 16 when they won their first championship and you're going well this is the greatest player that we've ever seen like even even then we were thinking and talking about Jordan as he will be the heir to to the throne that was left behind by Magic and Larry Bird, and it's poetic that they go through Magic to get the the title and all of this stuff. And then by the time I graduate high school in in, in the third championship, you're so conditioned to believe that this is the way it's going to be forever. And that's why the first three peat was was a little bit more fun than the second three peat because of the growing up. With the team, whereas they kind of put that whole roster in, you know, they microwave that whole second three-peat roster. That all came up after Jordan retired, basically. Like, everybody from 96, no one was on the team in 93 except for Jordan and Pippen. So there was this whole change, and you didn't have that emotional attachment. I remember 96 feeling even a little bit like, well, that was fun. That was an okay time. I'm glad it happened. I'm... I. I still miss Cliff Levingston. Like that's kind of where my brain was, but but that's what made '97 and then '98 so special was because by the time you got there, then it was like, yeah, Harp, Steve Kerr, Bushy, Wennington, Dennis, Luke. Like then you felt some great deep affinity for all those players. But I remember in '96 feeling like, yeah, that was that was really cool. That was like a really cool movie. Well, it was because you had the. I, I'm a huge Scottie Pippen stan. Like oh, yeah. I, I am a 100%. a Pippin stan, and I was sitting there in the the year and a half that Jordan's not there, going, I think Scotty's good enough. I think that he can put them in a final situation. He's a good enough player now. He's learned enough. He's learned at the foot of Jordan. He's he's gotten tougher as a player. And I was devastated w- with the call in New York. Oh, of course, devastated. Because I felt that there was a validation that Scottie Pippen was heading towards that he would have gotten had they advanced. And he didn't get it. And I'm just sitting there as a Scottie Pippen stand like, that's too bad. And then, of course, Jordan comes back. It's like, well, they're about to go win again. Do you know that Kyrie is basically on the exact same emotional timeline right now that Scottie was on? As far as the amount of time away from playing with Jordan or LeBron that it took for him to say, okay, yeah, maybe I want that guy back. It's like almost exact to the month, like right around this time. So this is February 1st that we're recording this, February 1st, 2019. So February 1st, uh, 1995, um, they were – Pippen was saying, I want to be traded. And it was not long after that. They had the Clippers deal that we've talked about on the table, and then that went under, and then Jordan quit baseball. And then was when Scotty was like – holding up the bottom of his Air Jordan to the camera and doing the come hither finger, you know, to get Jordan you to, know, come to, say, back. to come back. It's almost the exact same timeline that Kyrie is now on going like, 
Yeah, I gave LeBron a call. Yeah, I've learned a lot from him. Yeah, he's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm not going to tell anybody what I'm doing. It's up to me and nobody else. Like, it, it's really interesting how that's played out. What's the most interesting thing as you've done a, a deep dive on the Bulls in their history? And I know it's, it's hard to narrow it down to one thing. So why don't we do this? What's the most interesting thing to you from the second three-peat? Jordan's 357 games out of 358. So from when he came back from baseball until his last shot with Utah, Michael Jordan played 357 of 358 possible NBA games. That's preseason, regular season, postseason, all-star. The only game he missed was the sixth preseason game of the 98 season, so in 1997, uh, which he had to miss because he had surgery to remove an ingrown toenail two ingrown toenails. That was after the team went to Paris for that McDonald's tournament where Scotty was injured and Dennis was still a free agent at that point. He hadn't re-signed yet. So imagine Jordan, without his two other best teammates, goes to Paris for this huge promotional thing with ingrown toenails. The flu game was MJ's 245th consecutive NBA game. And I remember adding up the numbers the Bulls, or if you include the Eastern Conference All-Stars, because they swept those three All-Star games, uh, MJ's teams won over that 358-game stretch. MJ's team won at a clip of a 65-win NBA team. That's amazing. Yeah. During that time, he won all three scoring titles. He won two of three MVPs. He won two of three All-Star MVPs. He won all three championships, and he won all three finals MVPs. So that run from coming back from baseball until 1998 is staggering. And of all, like, the numbers that can sum up the emotional experience that we had of, like, Jordan doesn't miss any time. Like, that's the number to me that is, validates that emotional memory. And then I looked it up, and he led the Birmingham Barons in plate appearances and game. He was like the only guy over 25 who had reached a certain number of games played, and he was 32. I mean, yeah, the guy's a machine. What can you say? I mean, he's just built differently. Okay, let me switch over to the Bears. Sure. I love when you do that, when you like pull a number and you're like, oh, here's a story that goes with that number that I'm talking about. we just saw Brian Erlacher go into the Hall of Fame. And when you were on my radio show, you made the case. And I, I joke all the time that when Charles Tillman comes up, I want you in the room. I, I, want, you, I want Dan Pompey to get you in the door because of all the people that he knows. And I want Dan's you to, the man. And I want you to go into the room and, and make the case. For these guys, so I'll, that I'll go in that room, that Super Bowl era, the, the the guys that went to the Super Bowl in 2007, that team is is littered with players that have very interesting cases yeah. for for the Hall of Fame. Brian got in, Lance will be on the ballot at some point. Yep. So will Charles, who I think his case gets better as, as we get further away from his career, which I didn't know was going to happen, but. There's an appreciation for what he did in changing the game. And any time that someone knocks the ball out, the announcer will reference Charles Tillman. Yep. That, to me, is a pretty great credential to put on your your Hall of Fame bona fides. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, the guy who I think is going to be the next to go in will be Devin. Um, I don't think there's going to be any debate at all. I don't think it's going to be considered weird. I think that the um, I, I think that the the movement behind him will be too strong, and people will say, "Oh yeah, Devin's got to go." Um, we've talked about this before. The way that the Pro Football Hall of Fame works is that you can only have at most five modern era nominees at a time. I've reached out to the Hall of Fame. I haven't heard back yet. I'm curious to know why someone like Clark Shaughnessy, who was a coach for the Bears, but really he was a consultant for the Bears. He was one of the he's credited as the architect of the T formation. He's on the Hall of Fame ballot in the modern era nominee spot, which means that he takes away a spot from say Steve Hutchinson because Alan Fanica I think is going to end up getting in and they're probably not going to have Steve Hutchinson as well, you might. There have been years where there have been multiple players from the same position. We saw it last year with Brian and, and, Ray. and Ray. But those guys were both like elite, elite, special, special, even among Hall of Famers. So I'm a little curious as to why someone like Clark Shaughnessy, A, is in the modern era section, and B, why is he listed as a coach as opposed to a contributor, which is really why he's on the ballot. He's not on the ballot for like the two years that he was defensive coordinator of the Bears in the 50s. He's on the ballot because of what he did for the T formation. Um, sort of the same at this point with Don Coryell, who's a finalist. We're going to find out if he's in, and I would vote for him. I do think there should be a separate coach portion, and there should probably even be like a senior portion for coaches. Why, the reason I say that is because those are the sort of wrinkles when people say, how could Lance not get in? How could Olin not get in? How could... It's because of stuff like that, because you can only vote for five modern-era nominees at a time. I think one of the problems, as I've read more about the Hall of Fame and looked at it, one of my little issues with it is that I wish there was more diversity of positions that were honored, because the whole idea of football, you just had on your show, why do you love the NFL? Why do you still watch the NFL? And I think what's really interesting about football is you have 11 guys on one side and 11 guys on the other side, and they all have to do their jobs within, you know, three and a half seconds or something goes terribly wrong. And if not every one of those guys is doing their jobs, then something goes wrong. You look at Tom Brady is going after his sixth ring. Think about how many players for the Patriots and how many coaches for the Patriots have factored in to Tom Brady being able to at some point say, I'm a five-time champion. I'm a six-time champion. I love the clip of Brady in Super Bowl Forty Nine against the Seahawks after they scored the go-ahead touchdown. But then Seattle, obviously, they had that whole long drive. And, and, and how, how, how weak and humbling of a feeling it must have been for Brady, who at that point hadn't won a championship in 10 years, to be stripped of any agency as he sits alone on the bench. Maybe Garoppolo is next to him, but he's pretty nervous. My memory of it is that he's just by himself. As he just sits there and watches Russell Wilson lead Seattle down, and he just has to hope and pray that his defense is doing something that is as great as what he was just doing a couple of minutes ago. And they did. And the whole reason that they were able to do that is because the coaching staff had taught the, like, 
fourth and fifth string corners all year. The tendencies. The tendencies. And here's what's going to happen. This guy's going to jam here and you dart in. And Brandon Brown, Browner, right? Is his name? Browner. Malcolm Butler. No, well, Malcolm Butler had the interception. But I, Brandon Browner, the, the, the other corner, the guy on the outside, was like, okay. And he like whispers to Butler, here's what's up. Remember, I'm we've seen him. this. We've seen this. I'm going to jam him, and you dart right in here. And Malcolm Butler darts right in there, and he somehow pulls it off. And the only reason Malcolm Butler was in the game was because Bill Belichick had felt that Kyle Arrington, something was off with him. So he subs in Malcolm Butler, who's a rookie. And then Brady gets the ball back, but they're right up against the goal line. And Belichick teaches his team, you know, the cheapest five yards in sports is drawing the other team off offsides. So Brady gets Michael Bennett to go offsides because right in that moment, Michael Bennett is heated and needs to make a play and needs to make a play and makes the wrong move. You see what I'm saying? There's so many little facets, so many aspects, so many people have to do a thing. And yet when it comes time to elect people to the Hall of Fame, I don't see just based on the numbers that same sort of appreciation for where greatness comes from. And that it is found in every single position. So you look at something like, I always use the example of like Andre Reed, who was one of my favorite players growing up. But Andre Reed was like never the best receiver in the NFL. He was never like the fifth best receiver, fourth best. But like nine receivers from the 90s are in the Hall of Fame. Nine quarterbacks from the 90s are in the Hall of Fame. And that means that like centers and guards and nose tackles and kickers and returners. Like, there should be no conversation about, well, should Devin be in the Hall of Fame? He's only a kicker. Like, what? He was the best to ever do a thing. And when Devin was successful, think about what a kick returner does. A kick returner is always betting that he can get more than 20 yards because if he doesn't think he can do that, he lets the ball go out of the end zone, he he kneels the ball down. 20 yards, that's a fifth of the field. A kick returner is always saying, I am better than a fifth of the field. So if he returns it and he's averaging 30 yards a return, then you only need, what, another 30 yards to be in field goal range? If a punt returner has 15 yards on a return, that's Devin as the greatest you know, return man all around. He's getting 15 yards on a punt return. He's getting 30 yards on a kick return. Yeah, and, and, and NFL people will tell you, just get me a first down on the f- punt return. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. he's getting you a first down and a half. First down and a half. So if you look at what Devin does, if you look at what kick returners do, Brian Mitchell, um, Mel Gray, Dante Hall, Billy Johnson, Abe Woodson, why shouldn't these guys be in the Hall of Fame at some somewhat of a proportional clip to quarterbacks? Because when you complain about football, what's the thing that people say about the NFL? They're like, oh, I hope it doesn't come and become flag football. Well, whose job is is changed the least if it's flag football? A quarterback. Because a quarterback on a given play is not supposed to be touched if he's to be successful. For Olin Krutz to be successful, he is supposed to be manhandled, and he's supposed to manhandle someone right back. Like, There's got to be that physical hitting on every play for Olin. So Olin's value drops dramatically if you're playing flag football, but Tom Brady's doesn't. Tom Brady's value probably goes up in flag football. The less you can hit a quarterback, the better that quarterback's going to be. So if the NFL is supposed to be about 
tackle football, the basics of football, tackling and blocking, then why isn't that reflected in the Hall of Fame? So when I look at the players like Charles and Lance and Olin, um, and we saw Julius Peppers retire today, he's going to go in, but like a defensive end has the advantage of having numbers. The challenge that Charles always had was that there's, there's no equivalent for a running back of not having an interception because they wouldn't throw to you. There's no situation where a running back has like eight yards on the ground, and they're like, genius, this guy is brilliant. It's proving a negative. Exactly. And no one understood at the time that, oh, Charles is forcing fumbles not just at a rate that's impressive for corners. He's forcing fumbles at a rate that's impressive for anyone. And, he's re- and, and his team are recovering these fumbles. So who cares if they're not interceptions? If people understood that at the time, Charles would have like five more Pro Bowls. And this wouldn't be a debate either. He would be right there in the discussion with Darrell Revis and um, Champ Bailey, who's probably going to go in this weekend. I, I mean, but but I do think there. that at the end of his career, people started to get it. That people were like, what this guy is doing is unique. To, to the league, and there's so many. Now there's a couple of generations of players that were like, I might be able to do that. Like, I, I might not right. be the best cover corner, but I think I can take the ball away, and I've got the, the, the hand-to-eye coordination to be able to punch a ball out. And, I, I mean, we used to joke, Charles and I would joke that he should have a school. You know, kind of like what Patrick Manley has put together now with the long snappers, that he should have a school to teach it. But I think that he's been kind of teaching it via video. Yeah. That, that these guys have all been watching him play and said, I think I can do that. Like, hey, let me try it. But think about how great Charles Tillman had to be in 2011 and then really in 2012 for people to take notice. He forced 10 fumbles. Coming into this year, Khalil Mack had forced 10 fumbles. Charles Tillman has the record for most fumbles forced in a season tied with Asiyu Minyura, who I haven't looked into like his film from that year, but I'd imagine he's getting several from strip sacks. Charles Tillman is just getting his forced fumbles where he's just manning up on someone and blasting a football out when their entire responsibility is to hold on to the football and to look straight ahead at people who are coming toward them to take that football away. Charles Tillman had one of the greatest seasons for a defensive back that's ever been. I wouldn't print that right now because I'd like to look into see, you know, who else would be amongst him. But Charles Tillman's 2012 is one of, like, the greatest feats that I've ever watched in sports. He had to be that good to even garner this Hall of Fame discussion. Whereas, like, I don't want to pick on the Bills, but, like, Jim Kelly's passer rating as a career is, like, 85 or something. Look at Troy Aikman. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I mean, 85 at a time where Steve Young was putting up hundos and Warren Moon, you know, was a little higher. And, like, Jim Kelly's numbers and Donovan McNabb's numbers are, like, pretty close. They're pretty close. But Jim Kelly played on way better teams. And that gets into, like, well, where's the love for Kent Hall? And where's the love for Cornelius Bennett? And where's the love for, well, James Lofton is in. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I 100% understand what you're saying. Yeah. 
I want to ask you, you, you brought up the, the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I'd love to know what type of changes you would make to the Baseball Hall of Fame, if any, as far as what, what goes into the voting or how we decide who is a Hall of Famer. I would vote for Barry Bonds. That, there, there's your change. Put Barry Bonds in the Hall of Fame. Greatest hitter I ever watched not on steroids and the greatest hitter I ever watched on steroids. <laughs> I, you know, everybody was on – Jim Parquet was on steroids, okay? Barry Bonds took steroids probably. I mean, I don't have any proof or anything, but, like, he probably did. Let's assume for the sake of this conversation that he did. But let's assume also that, like, a lot of people took steroids, okay? Barry Bonds hit 73 home runs and then next year hit 370 to win a batting title. Two years later, he hit 362 to win another batting title and walked 232 times. He had 120 intentional walks that year. That would be like, that was good. I remember I added it up. He could have won the walks title like eight years since 1990 based just on his intentional walks in 2000, whatever year that was, 2004. 232 walks. That's and insane. This is, and this is why I know this is why I know the the whole conversation around steroids is is bogus in baseball because it's only about the home run. And the home run is like the dumbest statistic in all of sports. Imagine if the rim at the Forum was 12 feet and the rim at the Chicago Stadium was 8 feet and Jordan was scoring points on an 8-foot rim and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was scoring points on a 12-foot rim. And then they were like Kareem yeah, he's the all-time leading scorer. And, by the way, was on a 12-foot rim. Like, why are the walls different sizes in ballparks? Why aren't there standardized wall sizes? That's moronic. But, okay, fine. It's charming. It gives every stadium character. its own character. That's fine. But then why do we care about home runs? Okay? We care about home runs because they're really super cool. I get it. But it's a terrible statistic. And again, the reason I know that the steroids conversation is not at all about morality or ethics or fairness of sport, it was all about home runs, is because Barry Bonds destroyed all of the walks records. I mean, forget about them. 232 walks and whatever his career number ended up being when he passed Ricky Henderson, who's going to touch that? And why was Barry Bonds being walked so many times? Well, he's being walked so many times because he was hitting 70 home runs and he could win a batting title and hit 370. So you can't pitch to him, right? And why is he able to do that? Presumably because of what steroids were able to do with training and hand-eye coordination and whatever else. So why don't we care about the walks record? Well, because who cares about walks, right? But I thought a walk is as good as a hit. It's a record, right? Ricky Henderson tore a base out of the field and was like, this is my base now because, you know, I stolen it. Today I'm the greatest. Today I'm the greatest. That was stealing bases, and you think about walking. Barry Bonds destroyed the walk records. But nobody cares about that. They only care about home runs. So that's why I know steroid conversation is kind of garbage. So put the guys in. I would put Barry in. I would put Rocket in. Um, Sosa? I would probably put Sosa in. The problem with Sosa is that if you look if you it's so hard with steroids. I guess you just have to say the numbers are the numbers, and everybody's in. So Sammy's in, and Mac is in, and Palmero's in. You know who's going to get in is A-Rod, because his image has been rehabbed. rehabbed enough from TV. 
and then people are going to be like, yeah, well, whatever. He could, you know, he played defense too, and you know, fine. I can't let you out of here. I know that you like to. You've done a lot of work on checking in on on the aging and and the law. Why is that important to you? Um, yeah, so I write for Aging Media Network. Um, we cover the entire care continuum. So if you if you know about um, if you know about senior living, there it's not just like senior living. It's not just like nursing homes. There there are eight, there are steps: independent living, assisted living, memory care for people with dementia, et cetera. Um, and uh, before this, I wrote for the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. It's important to me for two reasons. One is that the reality of sports journalism is that it's just really, really hard. And not everyone is going to have a space in it that is a 9-to-5 space. And people who have a 9-to-5 space turn around one day and they don't have a 9-to-5 space. You have a great name and all of a sudden layoffs and boom, you're too high-priced. And now you're gone, you know, from ESPN, from Yahoo, wherever it is. And... um. And so that's just one reality that people should be aware of. But another thing is that I've always found that it benefits my sports writing to write about other topics. So I've covered music. I've covered politics. I've covered social issues. I've covered the law. I've covered um, the aging world. I've covered different elements within each of those categories. So I've done album reviews and I've done show reviews. I've covered hip-hop and I've covered rock. I've covered uh, law schools and I've covered ARDC um, disciplinary cases. That's the body that if you make a – if you cheat a client out of money or something or you do something wrong, you get disbarred and or you get disciplined and it's this organization, the ARDC. And I've written about um, you know jury verdicts and all sorts of things. Right now at Aging Media, I write these big in-depth trends reports. So we published one yesterday on primary care in um, senior housing and that more and more senior housing operators are realizing that um, they need to bring a doctor and a primary care physician to their residents. Um, for a lot of reasons, it helps them. It helps uh, reduce uh, hospitalizations and hospital readmissions, and it's a differentiator when people are deciding what to buy. But the report that I'm working on next is on multi-brand strategy. So this is senior housing operators that are looking at their properties the way that hotels do. So Marriott has Ritz-Carlton, but it has the Westin sort of in the middle, and it has a loft or Fairfield Inn, I think, at the bottom, you might not know that these are all Marriott, but as a consumer, you're making decisions like, oh, well, I need to be able to stay at a Ritz-Carlton for some reason, but like, oh, actually, you know, for this wedding, I don't want to go all out. I'll go to the Aloft. And uh, the one before this we did was on smart home technology in senior housing. And the one before that we did was on intergenerational senior housing. And the point is, is that these are related, but they're all very different. And you have to, I have to be able to write about them in a way that is valuable for our readers who are senior living operators. Well, what happens when you're covering sports? You go into a locker room, and what's the number one complaint among athletes is like, who are you to tell me what my job is? I, the best quote, man, the best quote I ever got was from Jonathan Scott. You remember Jonathan I Scott? I do. Jonathan Scott, for anyone who doesn't remember, was a – backup, and then briefly a starter um, offensive tackle for the Bears in 2012. And when I was on the Bears beat, I, my thing was I talked to everybody. 
and I I was up and down the roster, and it led to some cool stories. So I remember I was talking to Jonathan Scott, and I was just sort of like it was just I was just like feeling him out, and I remember asking something like, "Well, do you listen to sports writers if they like offer some sort of critique about offensive line technique or about what Jay is doing or you know Jay and Brandon or about how the pass rushes or et cetera?" And he goes, "Well, you're a writer, right?" And I said, "Yeah." And he goes. Well, would you listen to someone tell you how to write if you looked at them and they didn't know how to hold a pencil? And I said, no, probably not. And he was like, okay then. So to be a good sports writer, I have to be able to be humble enough to know what I don't know but be smart enough to have some sort of valuable contribution, especially now when there are so many options for consumers to go. They can go to um, big cable you know, they can go to websites, they can go to blogs, their friends have blogs, people are Facebook living and turning that into a, you know, a career and that's the jump off. So I need to be dangerous in a certain respect and flexible so that I can, if you go into a Bears locker room, again, talking about the variety of positions, I need to be able to have something to say to Charles about being a defensive back and I need to have something to say to Olin about being a center, and I need to have something to say to Robbie about kicking the football. But then the next day, my editor says, hey, can you go um, and do a profile on Andrew Shaw and go to Blackhawks practice? All right, well, now I need to be able to go to Blackhawks practice and do that. And then my editor says, hey, you know, um, Tatiana McFadden, I think that was her name, or is her name, she's alive, but um, an amazing uh, para-Olympian. Um, hey, you know, she's going to be in town for the Chicago Marathon. You want to go interview her? Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll do that. And then someone comes along and says, hey, we've got an opportunity for you to interview uh, Scooney Penn about, you know, old Final Four stuff. Can you do that? Um, yeah, okay, I can do that. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you're going to be in sports, you have to be able to handle all this stuff. And I have found that being able to really fast in a, in a short amount of time become knowledgeable enough and dangerous enough to write about the law or or senior housing or all of these different elements within senior housing in a way that the reader can respect. And again, the reader is an expert in this case. Um, I found that that is very, very useful, very beneficial to being able to be a better sports writer. And things like aging and the law, finance, all this stuff is in sports. All this stuff. One of the best reports. Uh, uh, articles I've read recently was ESPN did a story, um, the Fair Fairnew. I never say their last name right. Oh, Awada Fairnew Awada. Yeah, Mark Mark Fairnew. There's two of them. One of them has a hyphenated last name. They did the Barry Bonds book. They're great, and they did this whole report on how the number one threat to football at large and the NFL specifically is insurance, because all of these insurers are walking away from this sport because you can't tell if someone has CTE until after they pass away and then they die and then someone says, you know, I think my husband had CTE and now I'm suing you 30 years after he finished his career and all these insurers are walking sideways because they don't want to be on the hook for the general liability that it takes to insure a football league and for the NFL, the workers' comp. Well, how do I know about insurance? I guess because I have insurance as like a human being, but because I've written about it for the law and I've written about it for aging media. It's very, very valuable to learn something outside of sports to apply to sports. You'll also always find athletes who are like, yeah, well, sports is what I do. 
but it's not who I am. And then you want to be able to talk to Nick Roach about the about like uh, being a sculptor or you know doing art projects. You'll want to be able to talk to Lance Briggs about comic books or Izzy about comic books. You'll want to be able to talk to Tommy Harris about preaching in the Bible. Exactly. Um, you want to be able to do that because it is one more connection that you have, and that is super important now, where athletes have their own broadcasting tools what does an athlete need me for to get his message out all i'm going to do is screw it up not me personally but like looking at it from an athlete's point of view there's risk in giving your story to someone else there's risk in in putting down a sitting in front of someone else's microphone i remember uh mina kimes did a profile on aaron Rodgers, and she said she went to his house and she took out her microphone and he took out his i mean she took out her tape recorder he came to her house he came right? to her house. That's right, because he didn't want he didn't he want, didn't want her in his house. in his house. Right. So that's right. Excuse me. So she took out her tape recorder, and he took out his tape recorder, and I said, "Ah, here's a guy who gets it." And Mina Kimes, I don't know if I'm saying her name right, but yeah. she is awesome. She's, She's a responsible a, journalist. Absolutely great writer. Um, I, I don't watch as much sports TV, so I don't really see her on some of these shows. But I know she's she's she seems phenomenal, to be really popular. But but I read her, and she's awesome. Um, she's kind of like you in the fact that she has she has a lot of experience in other disciplines, in other places, and she and was her, a business writer yeah, for exactly, a long time, like exactly, that sort of thing. Exactly. And her her jump off was that she's a Seattle fan, and she wrote this essay about I think the Seahawks, but it was about her and her father watching Seattle sports. I think it was the Seahawks, and maybe the Mariners. Pretty sure it was the Seahawks. But she wrote this story, and she was probably free from any pressure because she had a job writing business that she could pump out this incredible first-person piece. And that ended up being what caught everybody's attention. Well, guess what? When you are a sports reporter, you're paying the bills. And you have to take the stories that come along. You don't necessarily have the freedom to write your opus, to write your book. You don't necessarily have the energy for that. There's only a certain amount of energy that you, that you have. When I was at the Law Bulletin, my creative energy, yeah, was going into the law, but at least that was just the law. So I had all this other creative juice left over for the Bears. It's the same thing now. The job that I have is really, really hard. It is really hard to get up to speed on all this stuff on senior housing. Um, and I have two incredible bosses who founded our company who know how to give employees the, um, uh, the, the, the space and the support and the assistance that they need. The, but the point is, is that when I'm writing about senior housing, I'm, I'm expending a certain kind of energy. I'm using my, my brain and my facilities in a certain way so that then when I want to write about the Bears, you know, I wrote this big piece on unretiring Bears numbers, that we should start unretiring numbers after 50 years so that we can retire Brian and Devin and guys Charles, like Charles but like Singletary and Dent and Hamp and cats from back, George Musso and whoever else. Um, I had that energy because I wasn't drained from feeling like sports is my job. It's a business and bleh. You know, like you hear that from people. You do. Uh, listen, when I was at Red Eye and I was, I was on the super grind, I didn't feel that way. I was always excited about it. But I would understand why people would end up feeling that way because – 
I remember uh, Hunter Thompson, I'm going to misquote it, but he said something like, um, you know, yeah, it's a lot of fun to be a writer, but uh, not if it's paying the bills. Nothing, nothing is fun if you have to do it lest you get evicted. So if you're a sports writer, the point is, is that if you're into sports and you don't have a job in sports, use that to your advantage. Learn skills outside of sports. Develop your mastery outside of sports. And then take your sports energy and write like the dopest thing in the world and use all of your energy to do that. When I was at the law firm, uh, which, um, whatever, that's a conversation for another day. But when I was working at a law firm in 2016, um, I was real pent up. It was not, it did not end up being the job that I wanted. Um, although I think with any job, you need to find things to take out of it that are positives. And I took several things, including some really great contacts. But I missed doing the writing and the writing and the writing. Well, guess what? I wrote my Bulls book while I was at the law firm. And I don't know that I would have had the focus necessarily if I was on the red-eye grind going to Hallis Hall three days a week covering my own expenses, knowing that the moment I set foot in Hallis Hall, I'm already in the red and I need to get like five interviews for the week and I need to actually sell those. So Sunday night I'm writing my list of like, all right, how am I eating this week? And I'm like, can I sell this idea? Can I sell this idea? Yes, yes, no, yes, maybe, okay. And you set foot in Hallis Hall and it's like, I wasn't a salaried guy. I was a freelance guy. And you're sharpening elbows. You're figuring out, how am I going to get stories today? Where are they going to be? Well, they might be Jonathan Scott because he's sitting there. No one's talking to him. So shout out to Vaughn McClure, though, who did like 25 minutes with Jonathan Scott that year. It was one of my favorite stories that came off the beat. But like you just have to be versatile. You have to be you have to take a long view. You have to be humble and develop all of your skills. And people say that within sports, learn how to, you know, be on air, but produce, learn how to write, learn how to be good on camera, but also be good on podcast format. But broaden that out a little bit, be good with all sports and be good with other areas of conversation because they will funnel into sports. You'll be better as a sports writer if you know a little bit about politics, music, the law, aging, technology. You'll be better. We good. We good. Thank you for doing this. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. There will be a part two. We need to do a whole episode with you talking music. Okay. All right? right. I'd like to do that. I want to get it. And we got to do some research and interview technique and stuff like that. For sure. Yeah. This was extremely helpful. (laughs) I appreciate it, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Lawrence. Like I said, Jack and I got cut short. But that's okay. At some point, Jack's going to be back, and I'm just going to give him an assignment. I'm going to, like, pick one thing in Chicago sports history and just let him go in. I'm telling you, this dude is the truth, man. And I I hope that you walked away from the episode going, that's a guy that I need to check out more of his stuff. I think that that guy is underappreciated and underutilized. And I remember when I met Jack... Because Jack, you know, he's he's a little, he's he's an acquired taste, man. He runs on his own thing. And I think that when he showed up to Hallis Hall initially, there were a lot of people who were like, who is this guy? And behind that kind of bohemian exterior <laughs> lies an Einstein-like 
intellect. So I got to know him pretty quick off the bat because I like quirky people. And all you have to do is listen to him talk for a minute and you know that this guy is on top of it. So that's a guy that I think deserves more shine. And I, I'm trying to give it to him and and give him to you in podcast form. So I hope that you enjoyed that. Let's get to some emails, shall we? House of L podcast at gmail.com. This from Peter. Peter says, Lawrence, love the podcast and pretty much everything else you do. I don't know if this would be possible based on how his exit at the score went down, but I'd love to hear Brian Hanley on the pod, given his history at the score and in the newspapers. I would imagine his well of great stories and insights runs deep. Keep up the great work. That's Pete. Well, I don't think I'm speaking out of school. When Brian left the score, you know, I reached out to him just to tell him that I appreciate him because I've I've talked about this on the air. I don't know if I've talked about it on the pod, but when I was younger and one of the first guys that I produced for here at the score was Brian Hanley. I, I'll i just be straight up and down about it. I was an arrogant ass back then. You know, I, I came into the score – not having gone through the scores internship program, I interned at WMAQ radio, which coincidentally now we're on that signal of 670 AM. I had already been producing professionally. I thought I had it all figured out. And when I got here, I kind of acted like that. And Brian was, was one of the people that was like, you know, you don't really know everything. And if you could share your feelings about things in a different way, it might be more effective. And so I told him how much I appreciated that and how much he would be missed around here. He actually likes the podcast. And that's one of the things he told me walking out the door. It's weird because you don't want to push people too far too fast. And you don't want to say, well, let's just come in and air grievances. I, I hope that enough time has passed that, we can get an honest assessment from Brian on how he feels, but but maybe how he feels is anger. I'm not sure, but I would love to have him on as a guest. I think it's a great suggestion by you and I'll, I'll reach back out to Brian. I should probably just reach out to Brian anyway, because I haven't talked to him in a little bit. A lot of people throwing out guest ideas. Here's one from Kyle. He's got a suggestion. I'm catching up on the podcast and first and foremost, want to say how much I enjoy it and appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. I saw your tweet asking for suggestions or thoughts and wanted to share my two cents. Let me see how long this is. All right. It's not that long. Again, it's awesome. And I'll keep looking forward to future guests. My favorite so far has been the two parts with Jason and follow up and a follow up would be nice. Checking in with him would be great, especially since he's going up against the goat this Sunday but in all seriousness, I've enjoyed listening to every interaction between you two and I've been that I've been lucky enough to hear. Other ideas for guests who I think myself and other listeners would enjoy would be Chris Ranji or Layla Rahimi. Both are great, and again, your interactions with them in the past have been genuinely awesome to listen to. Last but not least, since this feels like my letter to Santa, can Manny be a Sox already, and can Barry please keep doing hit and run? Thanks, I'll keep my eyes open for the next podcast. Well, as I record this, I can tell you that I sat with Barry at a Blackhawks game yesterday, and he's not going to be back on hit and run. And 
I don't suspect he'll be on the score anytime soon. He'll be, he'll be doing something, but I don't think it'll be with us anymore. Yes, I would prefer that that the the Manny and the Bryce Harper thing would be over, and we as White Sox fans can either celebrate or be like, okay, well, let's look forward to Eloy and Lou Bob, and get on with our lives. Great suggestions. Chris Ranji and I have been playing like phone tag. Ranji spends a lot of his time here in Chicago because he hates St. Louis. And I figured there'd be like one weekend where he was in town and we could just knock out a couple hours. So we're, we're working on it. I think what's probably going to happen is we'll connect the board here in Chicago to his board in St. Louis and just knock out an episode that way. It'll sound like we're in the same room. We just won't be, which is unfortunate because I adore him. So Layla. Yes. Layla is on the list. I, I, I don't want to, like, over – when it comes to Layla, like, I'm trying really hard to not overdo it. She comes in and does the show once a month. It's not like I can pay her. So I don't want to – I don't want to take advantage of our friendship and keep asking her to do stuff. But, yes, her – what we haven't talked about in a long time is her journey, and her journey is fascinating. Like, her origin story is really good. So maybe we should. I should just bite the bullet and just ask her and just say, just, would you just come and do the podcast? And then we could just get crazy. Like, with no restrictions and that sort of thing, it could be a lot of fun. So thank you. I appreciate the, the idea. And I'll, uh, I'll, I'll reach out to Layla and see what she says. This from Brian. Lawrence, I heard the promo for the Mark Rody episode on The Score and decided to give it a listen. I really enjoyed it. Look forward to listening to more episodes. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate you jumping on and being a part of House of L. Yeah, the Grody episode is really amazing, and I'm very happy that he was as honest and forthright in what he had to say. I thought it made for a great episode. I truly did. He was amazed. I was looking at some of the feedback on it, and he was amazed at how many people listened. And I told him he... The only person who had a better first day of the podcast. Usually that's where most of the listeners come from. You download it the first day. Like I can see the numbers and stuff. The only person who had a better first day than Grody was Jason. He's the only person. Like it shot up like a rocket. And it hit a, a milestone pretty quickly for me as far as numbers go. So I appreciate him sharing and and it was a lot of fun. And I thought that he brought the best out of me and I brought the best out of him. And it worked out really, really well. So thanks, Brian. I'm glad that you enjoyed that because he was a, a fantastic guest. This from Jason who says, put Peggy Kaczynski on. I saw PK a couple weeks ago. I think that can happen. I really do think that can happen. This one from Beth. Beth says, Lawrence, parentheses, and Mark Rohde, thanks to both of you for your willingness to be open and honest during your recent podcast. I thought it was important for me to share my Vortex vacation with House of L with you so you could read how much your podcast impacted me. Oh, this is nice. Wait, this is super long, though. 
Yeah, I can't read the whole thing. But I'll just read this part here. I kept trying to tell myself to move on from it, but there was something that kept pulling me back, telling me I needed to share this with you. The fact that I could be so open with you about myself tells me you both earn my trust. And that's from Beth. So Beth goes on and she tells a story that I'm not going to share because she doesn't want me to share it with you. But she was moved by it, and I thank her for it. All right, one more. Hey, Lawrence, love the show on the score and enjoying the podcast. When you were reading other email with suggestions, a few names popped up who would be great guests. I'm not sure if ESPN would allow it, but Tom Waddle would be great. Also, Jeffrey Bear from PBS would be great. I've always enjoyed his series on the history of Chicago. Anyways, keep doing what you're doing. Thanks, Jason. I don't really have a relationship with Tom. Um, I would say him or Sylvie. I don't really have a relationship with either one of those dudes. I I mean, I can ask. I see them occasionally. Like if I'm doing Windy City Live, like that's where their studios are. Strangely, are like two blocks away from our studios. I don't know if he'd be interested, but sure, I can ask and see what he's up to. See if he'd want to. I mean, it's an interesting thing because I think that his the way that he transitioned from player to broadcaster is kind of a template on how it should work. And now you end up building a a career that's 20 years, a long, long time after he's done playing. It's pretty impressive. All right. Oh, I promised that I would tell you who the guest is for next week, right? (laughs) Next week, my guest is someone that you don't ordinarily hear from. Well, you don't ordinarily hear his voice. Me and Chris Tannehill sat down for two hours of a really incredible conversation. And I think that you're going to enjoy it. And you're going to learn more about him than you already knew. One of my guys from the nighttime show back in the day. I'm so proud of what he has already accomplished and will continue to accomplish. You will dig the conversation. So next week, Chris Tannehill will be on and we will talk sound and music and White Sox and all sorts of stuff. Thanks for listening. Go back and listen to some previous episodes while you're at it. Check out the Grody. Check out the Joe Ostrowski episode. Check out the John Whiteman episode, the Sarah Spain episode, all the great people that I've had in. Thanks for being a participant in the House of L. It's appreciated. See you next week. Peace. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts 
to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.